The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 3. As we were singing uh, the song just a few moments ago, the, the line, High King of Heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. It's a great line that looks to the future when our time on this earth is done. And uh, uh, to our great sadness, I have to report to you this morning that one of our, one of our brothers in Christ, a part of our church family, has won his victory and is with the Lord uh, today. It's uh, Brother Wendell Johnson passed away yesterday. Uh, he's been a part of this church family for many, many, many years. And if you've had the privilege of knowing him uh, and experiencing his kindness and his grace and his, his wonderful spirit, then you uh, uh, appreciate the gift that he has been to our, to our congregation. But for Wendell, uh, life's journey is over. His victory won. And uh, experiencing all of heaven's joy, even heaven's bright morning sun, the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. So uh, we're sad because we have to say goodbye for now to somebody we love, but we are excited for him uh, to be in the presence of Christ. Uh, what more could you ask, right? To have lived that many decades on this earth, worship the Lord from afar for so many years, and to now see him and know him face to face. That is the experience of our friend and our brother this morning. So pray for his son Brian, for our brother Boyd. I believe I, I saw Boyd maybe even this morning. And there he is right here in the, in the middle. Mr. Boyd, Mr. Madeline, Boyd's brother. Uh, and all of their extended family as they uh, experience that grief that comes with separation from people we love. So pray for them if you would this morning and throughout the week. Let's turn our attention this morning to chapter 3 of Revelation. We sort of rewind a bit because I jumped ahead last week to the church at Philadelphia. But let's go back to verse 1. And let's uh, try and capture the uh, church at Sardis this morning. Christ says, and John writes, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come to you like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I'll come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they, they'll walk with me in white, for they're worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Let's pray together. This is the word of the Lord for us. Lord, your word is, is true and it's right in all that it proclaims. We confess that this morning as we approach your text. We, we approach it not casually and not as though we're handling something that has no value, but we come before it as the very precious words that come from you. And we handle it and approach it and study it and read it and apply it with some level of, of reverence and fear, holy fear and trepidation. Because we understand, Lord, that as we read your word and study your word and comprehend your word, we are then accountable to live your word. And so this morning as we, as we study, we pray that you would cause our understanding to come alive to capture this text and to understand what was happening in the life of this church at Sardis, that we might, Lord, be able to do a clear diagnosis of our own church and our own spiritual lives, that we might avoid the destination at which this church had arrived. We rely on you, Holy Spirit, to help us in every single way. We're reminded, Lord, even as we think of a dear brother going to be with you this weekend, that our lives are short and they do come to an end. And at some point, we all stand before you to give an account. So give us a sober heart this morning as we open our minds and our hearts to what you have to say to us. For it's in your holy name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we turn our attention from the city of Philadelphia that we looked at last week, sort of rewinding up that route on the map that we have looked at for a few weeks now, sort of uh, backwards over to Sardis. And we find ourselves in a city that's very different from Philadelphia, very different from Ephesus and Smyrna, some of the coastal towns uh, toward the east. Sardis is kind of a unique town. It was a very uh, glorious sort of town in its history particularly. It had a deep and rich history. Uh, one of the most glorious cities, in fact, in all of Asia Minor over history. One of the big problems that, that this city had, though, was most of its glory had been in the past. Sardis's best days were behind it. The city had, a, a, as I said, an old and rich history. One of the things that was notable about this city is that they were the first to mint coins out of gold and silver. I think uh, I have a picture maybe there out of order of, of one of those things, uh, a coin from early Sardis, one of the uh, first cities to do this. Uh, they were historically in Sardis a military town. They had a, a very rich military history in this particular town. They, they had very rarely historically lost any battles. Uh, in fact, the way this city was built, um, if you were to go there and to see sort of the, the structure of the land, there, there, Sardis originally was built up on the side of sort of a mountain. There's some excavation going on and has been for some time on that mountain, sort of revealing some of the parts of old Sardis. You can see here some of the excavation on the top of that mountain, uh, how the, the city was built up on the top with some, some very uh, steep walls there all around it. Uh, and, and it was, it was a, a strategic place militarily. It was built up on this high point with these, these steep rock walls on three sides, which made it virtually impregnable from three directions. You know, the only way you could get up into the city was through one direction on one main road that went up there that was fairly easy to defend if you were 
uh, sort of uh, looking at it from a military standpoint. Uh, and so it was a, a well-fortified city. They had a rich military history. Uh, it was a city that rarely was attacked because of its, its, uh, the difficulty of trying to overcome this particular place. I had mentioned when we talked about the church in Philadelphia in AD 17 that there was a, a massive earthquake that had devastated Philadelphia. Well, Sardis was really close to Philadelphia, and they had experienced the same sort of devastation from that earthquake that had destroyed the city. Uh, however, Sardis was rebuilt after the earthquake. Uh, some rebuilding up in this, the main city, but the town had grown so much. The problem with building on top of a mountain like that is eventually, if the city grows, what happens? Well, you run out of mountaintop for, to do things, right? So what do you do? You build, you expand the city down on the plain underneath, and you build great things like this uh, gymnasium library that's been uh, 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 unearthed down at the bottom. Uh, and so Sardis sort of over time became a city that existed in two places, this fortress area up on the top and then a, a broader, uh, more modern city down here on the plain. And, and the way they sort of operated was they, they operated in two locations, but if there was a great threat, what do you think they would do? They would all sort of retreat up to the, to the top of the mountain and inside the fortress and, and find protection. And so uh, this was a, a, a very interesting city from that perspective. Uh, again, like some of these others, they worshipped all of these, this pantheon of false gods. Uh, most notably in this particular city was uh, the same, one of the same goddesses that we've seen worshipped in other places called by uh, different names, Artemis, Diana. It's the same sort of a, a fertility goddess that isn't a goddess at all, that's really just a demon disguised as a god that has uh, uh, sort of got its grips around these people and their hearts and their minds. And, and the, the worship of this particular demon uh, sort of revolved around fertility rites and the fer fertility cycle, and they were sort of obsessed with life coming out of death and these themes of life and death and and all of that's going on, very similar to what we've seen in some of the other towns, so I don't want to belabor that point. But this church at Sardis, to which Jesus speaks here, uh, is, is different from some of the others that we've seen. You'll, you'll notice that nowhere in the text was there any mention of persecution. There's no indication that they were, that they were dealing with any significant persecution as a church. There's no mention of any particular heresy that's taken root at this church like we saw in some of the others, right, where heresies had taken root. Or we saw a couple weeks ago this, this, this uh, Jezebel-led uh, uh, heresy that had, had cropped up inside the church. Nothing like that here at Sardis. No particular heresy, no particular persecution. Apparently, Satan did not need to employ these tactics in this church because it seems the church had taken its own cues from the world all by itself. And so that's what we're finding here in this particular church in Sardis. It's a sad, sad letter. It begins with a, a greeting that's quite similar to some of the others. Jesus ad announcing himself, pulling from chapter 1, uh, one of the identifying uh, sort of descriptions of himself. And he calls himself here the one who had the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, we, we talked about that fairly extensively in the introduction several weeks back, but just as a refresher, or in case you weren't here, this phrase, the, the seven spirits of God is a reference to the sevenfold work of the Holy Spirit. It's drawn from Old Testament imagery in the book of Zechariah, chapter 4, um, where the Holy Spirit is described with the sevenfold ministry. And there are other allusions to this in the Old Testament, but suffice it to say, the message there 
is a, a reference to the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And it might be, in, in some sense, a foreshadowing that Christ is, is giving us for what really this church needed more than anything. They needed the work of the Holy Spirit in their life and in the life of their church. They were utterly devoid of it. The seven stars, again, is just a, a reference to the seven pastors or leaders or lead elders or whoever the lead representative was for each of these churches. And Christ is reminding this church, like he did all of us in the first chapter, that he holds them in his hands. He is the one who's sovereign over leadership of his church. Normally, in the letters, we would have seen a pattern here where there's an introduction of Christ, and then he go, would normally go into commendations, right? Some, he would say some kind things, some things that are good about the church before he would then go into a critique or a, a, a sort of a, a, an exposure of the challenges that they were facing. What you'll notice in this letter to the church at, at, at Sardis is there are no words of commendation. Christ examines the church, and he has nothing good to say. He has no kind comments. He has no commendations to soften the blow of what's about to come. Nothing good to say. In fact, in, in verse 1, he says, I know your works. He said that before, I know your works. I know your works. And he goes right into saying, you have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Your greatest work is that you look alive, but you're dead. The best thing that Christ has to say about the church is that. That's a pretty awful predicament to be in as a church. When Christ comes, and he comes to do your performance evaluation, he comes to, to give you a report card, if you will, and he evaluates what you're doing and what's going on and what's being said and what's being sung and the activity that's happening in the life of the church, and he comes to the conclusion that there's absolutely nothing worth commending you for. What a sad, sad reality that this church is facing. He says, I know your works. I know your works. It's a, just another gentle reminder, maybe not so gentle from the Lord, that you can't fool him, that you can't pull the wool over his eyes, that you can't trick him into believing that you're something that in fact you're not. You might be able to fool other people, but reality is what reality is, and Christ the Lord Jesus knows reality. It's true of a church, and it's true of an individual. It's a fool's errand to go about trying to pretend to be something that you are not, thinking that somehow you're going to pull the wool over Christ's eyes, as though you're going to convince him that you're something that in fact you're not. He says to this church very clearly, listen, I know you. I know you. I know you. I know the reality. You cannot, you cannot fool me. And you have a very, very serious problem. And he gets right to the point. He doesn't beat around the bush. He does absolutely nothing to soften the blow that he's about to bring down on the heads of the people of this church. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. The word reputation in the English translation of your Bible there is a, is a bit of an interpretive twist on the word. The word literally is the word for name. You have a name alive, but you're dead. The name that you're known by, if you will, is life and alive, but in reality, you're dead. Apparently, this church was very well known. It was a church that had a reputation 
In fact, it, it had a, a good reputation. In fact, every church should strive to have a good reputation. Having a good reputation is not a bad thing, right? To be known as a church that's alive, that is a wonderful thing. You, the last thing you want is to be known as something other than that, right? Uh, the, the, the church had a reputation, and it was a good reputation in the community. People were well aware of this church at Sardis. And people in general thought well of this church at Sardis. And reputations in general don't sort of come out of a vacuum. You don't, you don't just wake up one day with a reputation, right? A reputation is earned over time. So at some point in the history of this church, things were doing well. This church was going full bore. Uh, they were passionately following Christ. They were presenting and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the church and in the city. They were seeing people come to faith in the Lord Jesus. They were seeing believers built up and growing and maturing in their faith. They were out there impacting the city with the gospel and making a difference. They were a church that was alive and a church that was thriving, a church that was doing the work of the ministry well. And they had done it long enough to have earned a good reputation in the surrounding areas from people. They were known as a church that was alive, a church that was active. If you had moved into one of the surrounding areas and you were a Christian and you bumped into a Christian and you said, what church should I go to in this town? People might have said to you, you ought to go visit that church at Sardis. That church is alive. At some point in history, they had earned the reputation of life. But sadly, a reputation is not enough. There has to be a substance behind the reputation. In other words, reputation has to match reality. And by the time John writes this letter and Jesus speaks to this church, reputation no longer matches reality. The days of this being a, a living church, at least in the eyes of Christ, are long in its past. Like the glory of the city itself, the church's best days are long gone. They still have the reputation, but they've lost the reality. Somewhere along the way in the life of this church at Sardis, things had changed. Underneath the surface, a, a deadly can cancer of some sort <clears throat> had taken hold in the church. Complacency had set in. Compromise had set in. Inward decay of some sort had set in. And by the time this letter is written, people are gathering and people are doing, and the church is still busy, but they are absolutely playing church. They are living off of a past reputation, and the reality is long, long gone. This church had been deteriorating for a long time. And yet they were completely oblivious to it, apparently. The problem is that the, the changes that were happening in the interior of this church were imperceptible to outward appearance. In other words, if you had visited the church, you wouldn't have noticed what was the reality. You wouldn't have been able to see sort of necessarily the, um, uh, the deterioration that was taking place. If you had gone to the church, you probably would have continued to see worship services that were active and people gathering for Bible studies and ministry still happening and activities still going on. They hadn't stopped any of that stuff. They continued meeting and worshiping and operating. But long, long gone was the power of the Holy Spirit. Long, long gone was holiness and the body of Christ. Long, long gone 
was any sort of genuineness in the work of the ministry that was happening in the life of this church. There was, and this is important, there was still enough activity to keep up the reputation. You got that there was still enough activity to keep up the reputation. But the reality of Christ's exalting ministry was gone. And it's sad. It seems like they didn't understand it. They didn't know. Apparently this had happened over time and there had been this drift and this sort of uh, compromise uh, inside that was going on in the lives of the people and the life of the congregation that had happened over time. And they didn't understand what was happening. They thought they were good to go until Christ speaks to them and says to them in very direct language, you have a reputation for being alive, but you need to understand reality. You're dead. You're not alive. You're dead. You say, how can that happen? Well, a good, a good illustration in, from the Old Testament would be back in Judges 16. You remember the story of Samson? Who doesn't remember Samson, right? I mean, you remember like Sunday school when you were a kid. You remember every young boy remembers Samson, right? That's your hero, the big strong guy who, you know, takes a, a jawbone of a, of a donkey and, and slays the Philistines. I mean... Who, who, what, you know, everybody loves Samson. He's like the superhero of the Old Testament, right? I mean, he's like the Superman or the Batman or whatever the Old Testament. But his story is a sad story. If you read Judges 16, you remember he had made vows to the Lord, and these vows were associated with the length of his hair, and his strength was from the Lord, of course, not from his hair. But the, the, the vow was that his hair wouldn't be cut, and that was the secret of his strength. He wasn't to discuss it. He marries this woman, Delilah, who... Well, we're not going to say much about her. She ranks up there with Jezebel, I think. Um, and so bad choice of a wife, and things go downhill for Samson. And, and this woman nags him to death to find out where his strength is from. And she is relentless. She will not let up on him. And finally, Samson just gives in to the woman. And he says, all right, here's the deal. And he explains to her what it is, that his strength is associated with his, the length of his hair and so forth. That very night, she lulls him to sleep and cuts off his hair. And he wakes up, and she says to him, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. This is verse 20 of Judges 16, a horribly sad verse. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep, and he said, I'll go out as at other times and shake myself free. In other words, I beat the Philistines a thousand times. I'll go take care of this. And then listen to the rest of this verse. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him, and they gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. Can you think of a sadder reality of a human life to have at one time been energized by the magnificent power of God only to come to the clear realization that the Lord had left you and you didn't know it. That was Samson. And that was Sardis. This church had been alive at some point. And like Samson, they had great power and great ministry. But at some point along the way, they didn't know that the Lord had left them. 
They'd allowed sin to corrupt their congregation. And as that cancer spread throughout the church, the Lord, the power of the Holy Spirit, had long ago left. And they're solely operating in the realm of the flesh. Apparently they don't know it. And so Jesus says to them, you have a reputation for being alive, but here's the reality. You are dead. You're dead. The word dead here can carry a a variety of meanings, but in the context here, completely ineffective, utterly useless is probably the best rendering. Completely ineffective. Everything that you're doing, everything that you're continuing to do, though the reputation still exists, the reality is you are wasting your time. Your worship is a waste. Your Bible studies are ineffective. The activity that you're still doing is dead. It's lifeless. It's useless. Whatever good works they were doing were dead works. The Bible speaks of all the works of unbelievers as being dead works. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and following, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, you, you may be familiar with this, that the blood of bulls and goats, um, uh, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from what? From dead works to serve the living God. When we come to Christ and then the blood of Christ covers us, he covers us and redeems us from our dead works, our useless works, and makes us alive to serve him. And, and he's using a descriptive here for this church that's, that's used throughout the New Testament and other places as a descriptive of the works of lost people. Your works are dead. You're dead. Now the church was busy and they were active and they were well known. The people really thought they were something people outside thought they were something but Jesus says rigor mortis is set in I wonder how many churches today would hear the same thing if Christ came walking through the doors and, and evaluated what was going on and listened to what they were saying and watched what they were doing dug a little below the surface of the hype and just the busyness I was able to get a real sense for the reality. I wonder how many churches today Christ would come and say, look, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Dead. And as, as I've said often throughout this series, you know, a church is really just a gathering of people, right? A church is a body of people. It's not something that exists apart from people. It is a gathering of people, of believers. And so what is true of the church really has to flow out of what's true of the people. So I wonder the same question. How many believers would Christ come to them and say, I've looked at your life, I've heard what you said, I've watched what you do, and I know the reality of your life, and you have a reputation for being alive to me, but you are dead. Oh yeah, the people that work with you, they think you're a Christian. The people that go to church with you, you've got them fooled. They see you there. They see you participating. They see the rep. You've got the reputation. But it doesn't match reality. It doesn't match reality. People think you're alive, but I know the truth. And the truth is, you're dead. You're dead.
I was reading and thinking this week, how do you, what are signs? When you're trying to diagnose this, what are the things you can look for to identify sort of a, a dead or dying church or a dead or dying spiritual life? And there's a number of people who've written on this and produced various lists. And I read through a bunch of those this week and sort of thought through my own sort of experience in a couple of decades of ministry now and just wanted to give you a list of things that sort of pop out in my mind from what I read and what I've seen that I think are, are good sort of diagnostic indicators that, that a church is either in the position of Sardis or on its way to Sardis. And I'll just throw these out there for your own consideration. Uh, you may agree or, or not, but it seems clear to me. Uh, just a few of these characteristics. One would be an obsession with the past. An obsession with the past. Oftentimes, dead churches are obsessed with what happened before and not what's going on now. That's clearly one of the things that was an issue with Sardis. They had a reputation. In the past, things had been great, and they were living off of a past reputation, and they had lost the reality of the present. It was also the problem of the Pharisees in the first century, right? They were all obsessed with the past and Abraham and history, and they totally, totally rejected the Lord Jesus Christ who stood in front of them. So oftentimes, I think churches become obsessed with the past, and it often leads to a spiritual death, always looking backwards to some past reality. Another thing is compromise of the truth. That's always a sure sign of death and decay in a church. When a church is willing to compromise the truth, when they're willing to compromise the word of God, when they're willing to sort of waver on the truths that they find in the scriptures, you see that in certain ways. Very few churches, at least evangelical Christian churches, will come out and say we're wavering on the truth or we no longer believe the Bible. But what you'll find is they just start avoiding large pieces and parts of it. And they never talk about it and never preach it and never say anything about it. Or when issues arise in the culture that conflict with the scriptures, they refuse to stand up and speak and say, here is what the word of God says and here's where we stand. When the church begins to compromise the truth, death and decay is just around the corner. I think another characteristic is when their church is obsessed with being loved by the world. In Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did also with the false prophets. It's a stark thing for Jesus to say. Yeah, when the world around you loves you and embraces you and thinks you're the most wonderful thing around, then there's probably a problem because that's how they treat false prophets, not real ones. And in our culture in America, it seems like there's an absolute mad rush among evangelical churches to be loved by the world. They'll jettison just about anything to get the adoration of the world. And the problem is they never get it. They're always chasing it and losing along the way. It's sort of a pet peeve of mine. I'm going to just a little aside here uh, for free. Um, you don't have to give extra tithes and offerings for this. One of the things that is frustrating to me as I've watched sort of what's happened in evangelicalism over the last 20 years is how a, a segments within the modern Christian evangelical church are constantly, constantly running after and chasing after whatever cultural bandwagon the culture is pushing at the moment. Whatever is the hot topic for the culture, there's a segment of evangelical church that is chasing after that bandwagon, that full force, saying, we do that too, we think that too, we want to be just like you. It doesn't matter what foolish movement it is, 
Right now, it's the whole embracing of critical race theory, which is an anti-God, anti-biblical sort of worldview. And there's a whole segment of the evangelical church that has no discernment, that is running after the world, embracing this, saying, oh, we, can, we embrace that too. We believe that too. We're just like you. Love us. It's like the, it's like the high school boy who, who wants to, to date the cheerleader, but the cheerleader doesn't like him. He, she likes the football player. And so... He starts trying to dress like the football player and trying to strut like the football player and trying to act like the football player. But the reality is, she's never going to love you, man. She loves the football player. You're just a cheap knockoff. Look in the mirror, man. Get somebody in your, you know, get somebody in your, in your world, man, at your level. But that's what the church so often looks like, and it's foolish and silly. Chasing after the world, trying to act like the world, trying to embrace everything that the world says is important at any given moment, and it only becomes a cheap knockoff of the real thing. And the next thing you know, you're trying to look just like the world, and it's a fool's errand, because what if you actually end up looking like the world? Then what does the world say to you? Well, why do we need you? We already have that. But there's so much within the evangelical church that loves to bandwagon and chase whatever it is that's that the culture thinks is important at the moment. And it ends up with a misplaced focus on peripheral issues that don't matter, and we always come off looking like a cheap knockoff, majoring on minors and minoring on the majors. And it's a sure sign of death and decay and destruction in the church. Listen, friends, the culture should never drive what's important to you. And it should never drive the agenda and what's important in the life of the church. The word of God drives those things. And we speak to the culture when the culture runs contrary to that with the truth of God. We don't jettison the truth and try and act like them so they'll love us. It's not how it works. Well, when churches are driven by material concerns more than spiritual concerns, I think that's another another indicator that death and dying is happening. And when there's a a coldness toward the loss that settles in like a fog in the church, you know that death and dying and Sardis status is right around the corner. What a terrible, terrible condition. What a terrible condition. To look in the mirror and think you're alive, but Christ come to you and say, people think you're alive, you think you're alive, but I think you're dead. I think you're dead. You might think Christ would bring in the hearse and try to bury this church because they're dead. Just, you know, have a funeral, gather up some people from the city, sing some songs, dig a hole, put a sign out front, dead, don't come here. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. (laughs) This is a weird thing, but I thought as a pastor, I've served at the same place forever now, but I've thought if I ever went to another church, I don't ever want to go to a church with a graveyard outside. Something about that bothers me. I don't want to be at a church with a graveyard outside because it makes me think of Sardis. You know, like, death is right there. I don't, I don't want that, you know, that close to the doorway. I, I don't know why, but that's probably just weirdness for me. I mean, probably great believers there in the, you know, I don't know. I set aside. But you would think Christ might hold a funeral, bury the place, but he doesn't. He's a gracious and loving Christ, Right? He still holds out hope for this church. He's still, he's still willing to breathe new life into the body, but there's not much time, and these people have to respond. 
And this church is like the hospital patient coming in on the gurney in the emergency room, and the Lord is like the doctor in the ER slapping him on the face saying, hey, wake up, wake up, you don't have much time, come to. You're dying. Snap out of it. And that's what he says to them by way of what they need to do in verse 2. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I've not found your works complete in the sight of my God. You need to wake up. Church, you need to wake up. You need to wake up. You're asleep. You are sleepwalking. You think you're alive, but you are dead, and you are dead wrong. Everybody else thinks it, and they're they're sort of playing into this reputation piece for you. But the reality is you're dead, and there's not much time for you. You need to wake up now. Wake up. Have you ever seen those hypnotist shows on TV, or maybe you've seen one live where they do something and hypnotize people and, you know, make them bark like a dog or meow like a cat or whatever they do to people when they hypnotize but, but how do they usually, how do they come, bring them out of it? They usually like do a, a snap or a clap or something like that. And then you just see like this, wake up, what happened, you know? You're going to hypnotize me or what kind of a thing. And I feel like that's where this church is. And Christ is trying to, you know, clap, wake up, wake up, snap out of it. But they don't want to wake up. Somewhere along the way, this church had lost its spiritual vigilance and it had faded he says, you need to wake up. You need to wake up, and you've got to strengthen what remains. There's a historical context to this. I told you about Sardis being a, a, a city that was nearly impregnable, uh, uh, very difficult to defeat in, 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 um, in military campaigns. But twice, historically, this city was utterly destroyed. And it was utterly destroyed for a very unique reason, because they had become so comfortable with their fortifications and so complacent with the reality that nobody could take them that the watchmen got lazy and sleepy on the watch. And twice historically, enemies had come and scaled those rock walls where the watchmen weren't paying attention and had gotten into the city and opened the gates for the army to come in. That historical piece is in the background of a lot of what Jesus says to them. You need to wake up. You can't be asleep on the watch anymore. Or you're going to fall just like the city did. You've got to wake up. You're vulnerable and you don't even know it. You're about to die. And if you don't somehow regain some spiritual vigilance in your life and in the life of this church, you are done. He says, if you don't wake up, in verse 3, I'll come like a thief. And you won't know what hour I'll come against you. He's not talking about the second coming. He's talking about coming specifically to this church in judgment. That's what he's talking about here. Just like those, those, those uh, enemies who scaled the wall when you weren't paying attention, I'm going to come to you the same way, and you're not going to know when I'm coming, just like you didn't know when they were coming. And I'm not going to come for a friendly visit. That's going to be a visit for judgment. And when you see me, it's going to be too late. I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy. You need to wake up. You need to realize what's happening. You need to confront the sin that is happening in the life of the church. And you need to set things right. And you need to do it quick. He says you need to strengthen what remains and is about to die. This fire is burning out. But apparently there's a few embers left. And right, somebody needs to get up to that fire and start blowing on it and fanning it pretty quick. Or else it's going to fade completely out. There's a little bit that remains. Whatever little bit that remains, you need to strengthen it. 
You need to fan it back up into flame because you're on the verge of death. Remember, he says, number three, verse three, remember what you received and heard. It's the same remedy when there's decline in the church as it is when there's decline in the personal spiritual life. You go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to remember what you heard and what you received. You need to go back to the gospel because you've, you've, you've strayed far, far away. You've strayed far, far away from whatever it was that enlivened you at the beginning, that added fuel to your fire, the gospel of Jesus that saved your very soul and that lit up your ministry in the early days has faded and you've, you've wandered from it. You've forgotten it. You need to remember that. You need to remember the cross. You need to remember the life and death of Jesus. You need to remember the resurrection of Christ. You need to remember what it means to be called to live in holy obedience to him. You need to remember what it means to be a disciple of Jesus and to truly deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after Christ. You've forgotten, and you need to remember you've gotten away from these things, and you need to get back to the basics, and you need to get back to making the main things the main things. Remember what you've heard. Remember what you received. You've forgotten it. Incidentally, that's why we do what we did in part, at least last week, when we shared the Lord's Supper together so that we can remember intentionally, not forget. Because when you forget, you fade into Sardis. And then he says, remember what you received and heard, keep it and repent. It's not just the truth that they need to recapture, it's obedience to the truth that they need to capture. The problem in this church is that they're not living in obedience to the word of God. There was compromise, and you know that because he talks about, in the end of the, in the, end of the, um, uh, the letter here, he talks about the few people who remain who've not soiled their garments. And that language of soiling garments is a, a, a picture of dirty clothes, uh, white clothes that are just filthy, and it's an analogy or it's a word picture for their soul and their character. What's happening to your, to your garments is a picture of what's happening in your soul. You're filthy and you're dirty and you're soiled. You've compromised with the world and you're living in filth of sin. And you need to repent. You need to turn away from your sins. You need to turn back toward Christ. You need to, your heart needs to break in sorrow and sadness over your disobedience and you need to turn away from the filth that you're living in. And you need to turn toward Christ. Your reputation can't save you. You need to repent. And you need to obey. That's the prescription for the cure. In verse 4, toward the end, he does say some kind things about a few people in Sardis. He says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. It's that same word, onoma, there for names that was used at the beginning. You, as a church, you have a name alive, but you're dead. But in the, inside the church, there are still a few names who have not soiled their garments. They'll walk with me in white, for they're worthy. To the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I'll never blot out his name from the book of life. I'll confess his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All wasn't completely lost. There were a few people, a few people in this church, a few names, who would somehow, in this compromised, dead church, continue to stay alive. 
You know, it's interesting. We don't have time to track it this morning, but God seems to always preserve a remnant of life in the midst of death. And in this church, he had preserved a simple, small remnant. There are some people in this church who have remained faithful to Christ, though their church has died literally around them. They didn't leave the church. They didn't go somewhere else. They've remained faithful in the midst of death and deterioration. And Christ says, there's a few. There's a few who've remained faithful to Christ. There's a few who've resisted temptation to compromise. There's a few who've maintained a holy living in an unholy world and an unholy church. There's a few of them. Christ says they're, they're due a great reward. Look at the things that they get, that, that little remnant. And, by the way, any of those who will wake up and repent and obey and remember He says, they'll walk with me in white. I got soiled garments right now, but I'll clean you up. I'll clean you up. Uh, eternal, perfect righteousness is the picture there. And one of the things that would happen when there was a military victory in Sardis, they have a great parade and everybody would dress in white and celebrate the military victory. And so what we've got here sort of is a picture of that, uh, the small remnant and all the people who will wake up and repent and obey will participate in Christ's triumphant procession at the end. He's like, hey, you're going to walk with me in white. We're going to celebrate in the end because you're worthy. You may look like a little, a little cell in the midst of a, a dead church or just a few people, but you're the victors, and we're going to celebrate that victory in the end. I'm guaranteeing you'll walk with me in white. And then he says, I'll never blot out his name from the book of life. The picture there is a promise of permanent security. The book of life is, in, in the Bible, the book it contains both the names and the deeds of everybody who belongs to Christ. It's mentioned all throughout the Bible. It's a good study for you to do on your own. We won't trace it except a couple places in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, uh, speaking of the beast, a little further in Revelation, John writes, And all who dwell on the earth, earth will worship that beast, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world, where? and the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Verse 12 of chapter 20, if you flip a few more pages over, this is a picture of the judgment. And John writes, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And if you flip another page over to verse 27 of chapter 21, speaking of heaven, he writes, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus says to this little church at Sardis, to these few names who haven't soiled their garments, and any who might respond to his call to wake up and repent, I'll never blot your name out of the book. Now, there are those who take this text to, to say, well, it seems like there may be some way that believers can lose their salvation because if Jesus says, I won't blot your name out of the book, that tends to lead to the possibility that maybe he might for other people. 
that's not at all the issue that's here. There's a historical context behind this that helps us understand what Jesus is communicating here. And it's just simply this, that rulers of ancient cities always kept a, a city registry by which they, they maintained a list of all of the, the people or the citizens of the city. And when somebody was, was uh, died or when somebody was convicted of a serious crime, they would, they would blot their names out of the registry. They're no longer citizens anymore. And Jesus is saying to those who are faithful, that never happens. To those who belong to me, to those who are truly saved, to those who persevere, to those who walk with me right through it all, perfect, eternal, permanent security. There's no chance in the world that their names, your name might get written off of the city registry, but it will never get written out of my book. Never. Those who trust Christ have permanent, utter security. And it's evident because they persevere to the end. And then he says, finally, I'll confess his name before my father. That's a great thing, right? To know at the end you don't have to plead your own case when you're dead. To hear the Lord Jesus Christ say, I'll plead your case. When it's time for you to face up to the judgment of your deeds that you've done in your life, I'll confess your name before my father. Man, what a glorious thing, right? To know that I don't have to stand in judgment and try and argue my own case. But to know that in that moment when my filthy rags of deeds are shown, Christ will say, he's mine. He's mine. Let him in. He belongs to me. What a glorious promise for every believer. And, and Christ says to this little, this little few names in this church, don't worry about it. I'll confess your name before my father. Matthew 10, he had said something like this before, verse 32, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll also acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. Similar to what he's saying here. You know what, if you're a Christian this morning, you have permanent security in your faith because Christ is your advocate who pleads your case based on his own death on your behalf. Not because you're strong enough to hold on to him, but because he's strong enough to hold on to you. Not because you can justify yourself in the end, but because he can justify you. I'll, I'll confess his name before the Father. The same Jesus said in other places, there's a lot of people who are going to come to the end of their life and they're going to expect to hear that, but what they're really going to hear is away from me. I never knew you. Many at this church at Sardis were expecting one thing and the reality that they were about to face was the other. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. You need to wake up. You need to wake up. And I'm telling you, friends, this is a sobering text this morning if you take it seriously. To understand the reality that an entire church could be very busy about things and be utterly dead. They could be actually active in doing things that make other people in surrounding areas looking on think that they are literally alive and on fire for Christ, but Christ looks through a different lens and says, in fact, you're dead. You're dead. To think that it's possible for a person 
to go through all the activity of Christianity and be able to convince the people in their circles that they're alive to Christ and yet be dead. It's a frightening reality that all of us should consider this morning. Just a few questions to think about as we sort of apply this to our heart and close. Think about this as a church and as an individual. Does reputation match reality? Does our reputation as a church, and I think we have a good reputation in our city, does it match reality? What about your own life? Does this reputation that you have, does it match the reality? Only you know that. See, nobody else knows. Only I know that about me. Nobody else except Christ. Better to come to terms with reality here than to stand before him and hear you're dead. In what ways is it possible that compromise might be slowly killing our faith? It happened at Sardis, it can happen here. Are there any ways in which we're looking backwards into the past for some sort of confidence and security rather than the present? Those are questions to think about as we sort of bow our heads and close our eyes. I don't need to press that any further, I don't believe. You understand. You understand, right? You understand the severity of the text and the message to this church and the message to our church. Will you take it to heart this morning? Will you ask the hard questions of yourself? Let's pray. Lord, we cannot think of a more frightening, frightening, horrifying reality that to hear the words from you you have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. The days in which we live have given people an awful lot of reason to live in fear of things that are happening around us. When in reality, there should be a holy fear of what's happening inside of us. Elections, presidents, congressmen, senators, cultural movements, laws that come and go, courts. None of those things have one iota of a difference, make one iota of a difference in the spiritual reality that happens in the life of a church or the eternal destiny of any human being. But what does matter, Lord Jesus, is your evaluation because you're the sovereign Savior who has died in our place and you are the judge before whom we'll stand. And there is no Supreme Court that can overrule your verdict. And so, God, we pray that you would help us this morning to evaluate our church, to evaluate our own lives, and honestly ask the question, could it be said of us, you have a reputation of life, but you're dead. If so, Lord, wake us up, snap us out of it. Draw us to brokenheartedness over sin, repentance, and obedience. Bring us back to the, to, the, to the things that matter most, to your gospel, Lord Jesus. And may the power of the Holy Spirit float in our lives individually and through the life of this church so that our reality matches our reputation, we pray. Amen.